The Bible passages can be found on page five of your service sheets. The first one is from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. The New Testament reading is from Galatians, starting, uh, it's at chapter 5, beginning verse 7. Galatians chapter 5. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, 
selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask you to work, do your work in us and through us. Show us Jesus Christ. Pour out your spirit in us and turn our hearts, Father. Produce in us fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen. So I visited my old school recently and was taken to the archives. It's been a number of decades, so I'm pretty sure I've been archived. There I saw a few things that got me thinking about our text today. I saw things that motivated me then to action. Some awards I received, some people who I admired, some photographs of some things I did, etc. Good things that pushed me on as a young man. Quite powerful things in hindsight, very defining. And I found at least one thing that motivated me to non-action. <laughs> I got an email from the archivist after my visit. She wrote, um, I've located the information request in the Senior Master's Corporal Punishment Register, 1980 to 1984. It's called the Caning Book. They phased it out pretty soon after I left. The caning, that is, not the book, which is still there. She went on, as the pages are stapled together, it's not easy to copy, not without seeing other people's names. I would have liked to list myself. She wrote, so I've transcribed the information as follows. 19th of July, 1984, J. Moffat, gross misbehaviour in class, two strokes, D. Carlos. Might look him up on Facebook this week. A record of my caning, it exists on the backside. I maintain that it was a mistake, but to be fair, I knew not to call the teacher names again. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we do the things we do? I'm talking about motivation here. Why do we pursue the good we believe that we're meant to pursue? Or why do we avoid the wrong we believe we're meant to avoid? Well, Christians have a nuanced answer to this question and a powerful answer and, quite frankly, a new answer. We've been maintaining in this series that a follower of Jesus is free. Jesus said it, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. But it appears in Galatians that this does not mean free from all constraints. Remember last week, Mick Jagger, I'm free to do whatever I want, any old time. No, sorry, Mick, that's called immaturity. Now, the New Testament is clear. 
those of us who are lying need to start telling the truth. Those of us who are not paying our taxes must take up or start taking up our civic responsibilities. It's in the Bible. Those of us who are always angry need to rediscover, or discover in the first place, gentleness and patience. Those of us sleeping with someone we're not married to, not covenanted with, we need to get married or stop sleeping with that person. Those of us with an addiction, alcohol, anger, pornography, we need to find that path, the hell away from it, and stay on that path. And it'll take time. We'll come to that in a moment. Those of us running our lives with the fuel of greed need to start serving sacrificially. Those of us not obeying God need to repent and become followers of Jesus Christ. So, the obvious question is, how is all of that compatible with freedom? And the answer is that those in Christ are moved by God's Spirit, not coerced. We are animated, shaped over time. And so we cooperate with God, walking with him. But he is the senior motivator. One of the unique things about Christianity is the promise of the activity of God in your life. He promises to fill you with his spirit. So Christianity then is not just a moral code to adhere to. It's not even a person to emulate. I like Jesus. It's not a club to belong to. It's not a set of rules to follow. It's not a religion to admire. If you follow Jesus, if you find yourself in him, trusting in him alone, then he promises to be active in your life, active by the power of his spirit, his presence over time. That's why works of the law are no good. They don't don't give you salvation. And they don't change your life. It's why Paul says that circumcision counts for nothing. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So today, uh, three things, you can see this on page six, uh, a recap, a quick recap, responding to the Galatian threat, and I've got two points, a secular response and a spirit-filled response, a secular response or acts of the flesh and a spirit-filled response, if you're taking notes. Firstly, a quick recap, Uh, I've got to do this every week just because there's enough new people and it's just too strange if I don't. Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia, now Turkey, to say to them, watch out, you're under a threat, you're under threat. You can see that in 5 verse 7. You were running a good race, someone stuck their foot out, they cut in on you, bumped you off, uh, kept you from obeying the truth. Verse 8, that kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you, it doesn't come from God, doesn't come from Jesus, and it's harmful. This new gospel, as he calls it earlier, will harm you, verse 9, a little yeast works with a whole batch of dough. You might think that what we're talking about is small, you know, uh, how many angels on the head of a pin, just another theological argument, but it'll actually destroy your life. Paul writes to them basically to say, I've been telling you all along, and you believed it early on, and that's what made such 
joy and passion between us. You know, it's by grace alone. Grace makes all the difference. He did the work for you. His death is the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for sin when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. So don't look to yourself. Don't look to your activities. Don't look back to the law. Stay in the space of God's grace. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? But there's a threat. So he says in 5, verse 2, Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke, the yoke of slavery. Right? You're an, why be an ox that puts a yoke back on? The yoke of slavery was the slavish movement back towards Torah or the Old Testament, the law. Some Jewish Christians, sort of clergy, ooh, from Jerusalem had come up to say to these new Christians who are alive in the grace of God, you know what, you've got to do a few more Jewish things. I mean, you've got Jewish brothers and sisters here and they're a little bit disturbed that you're not obeying the Bible. For them, meaning the Old Testament covenant laws that belong to Israel. Now, they weren't right to say that, by the way, because there's a movement within the Torah itself towards the very things that Paul is saying. Absolutely, that's one of Paul's arguments here and in Romans. But these people are sort of two-dimensional, and they're speaking to people who don't get it all, and so they just say, look, there's a Bible verse that says that you should have your males circumcised. Now, we're not talking about, you know, doctors and sons in hospitals and health or not health or, you know, yada, yada. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a religious sign that you belonged to the people of Abraham or that you're a son of Abraham. So it's a very Jewish requirement, a hoop to jump through. And they would say things like, since the Bible says it and since Jesus was a Jew and he obeyed Torah, the law, you should too. What's more, it's pretty small anyway. It doesn't really matter. So, you know, put simply, Paul says they were preaching circumcision. And Paul wasn't. Paul was preaching grace. And Paul says what matters is not circumcision, but faith expressing itself through love, trusting Jesus. And that was when you were free. Like you understood that as freedom. So it says in verse 11 of our text today, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Everyone's happy if it's sort of like Judeo-Christian ethics. But I'm actually saying no to the circumcision part and yes to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. If I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Perfectly red, Anne. Perfectly red. Perfectly red. The knife didn't go far enough. I think you're supposed to laugh and have the penny drop at the same time when you read that verse. You're supposed to go, ha, that's in the Bible. The cross, of course, frees you. Grace frees you. That's the offense of the cross. So stay there. So one response to the grace of God might be, hey man, religious people telling me what to do? No way. Clergy? You only make this pulpit to exercise power. Forget you, man. I'm free. I'm a grace junkie. Don't tell me what to do. And so there's a misuse of freedom that Paul outlines here, and this is point number one in your Uh, 
outline, a secular response, i.e. acts of the flesh in verses 13 to 15, and the acts of the flesh he outlines in verses 19 to 21. I call this a secular response because it's a without God response. Not that everybody without God has this response in equal measure, but it is a response without God. You could say, I'm free so I can do what I want. Paul says, no way. Verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That's sort of language for Paul about the way of being human. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, doing what you want to do, but rather serve one another humbly in love. What a trifecta. Serve one another humbly in love. Check, check, checkmate. Why? Because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, and it's not to do with circumcision. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. There's no doubt that this sort of uh, movement back to law meant that people were drawing lines in the sand, who hasn't crossed the line, who hasn't jumped through the hoop, you're not really fully Christian, you're second class, you go to that room, we'll go to this room. And he says the same thing in verse, uh, implication in verse 26 of our text today. But you aren't slaves to law, and you're no longer condemned, but that doesn't mean you can get away with murder, or hating, or hurting, or biting, or judging. I've seen it, by the way, Christians drunk on grace. They sort of can't believe they scored the right religion. They scored the God who doesn't condemn. What did W.H. Auden have on the lips of Herod in one of his works? God loves forgiving sins. I like committing sins. Really, the world is admirably arranged. So you do as you please. No judgment, just embrace. No condemnation, no questions asked. I've seen grace produce arrogance. I've seen and felt it in myself. But Paul has a warning. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. And so freedom is not free from constraints but free to choose which constraints you'll carry more on that next week when we talk about pastoral care of each other not of clergy to lay but you to each other and craig tubbard will be here because he's doing a lot of work in that space so be here next week boom be here next week i won't be but i will be listening Paul says, we aren't nitpicking over law. Um, we're asking God to work in and through us. Verse 14, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Do that, says Paul. That's a misuse of power to do what you want to do. But do this, love your neighbor as yourself. But with what power? Caning power? Legislation? Rules? Religious requirements? No, the answer is, you do this with what power? The power of God's Spirit. So my second point tonight, today, a Spirit-filled response. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Verse 16 is one of Paul's way of talking about the Christian life, walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, staying close to God, staying in Christ. And if so, a promise from him, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The way to access the work of God in your life is not to do something, but to belong to someone, to walk with them. Paul says, walk by the Spirit, verses 16 and in verse 25. And the promise is, if you do life with God, he'll give you his heart. We sung it a moment ago, by the way. Did you notice that? Break my heart for what breaks yours. God will protect you from doing what you want, verse 17. Why? Because he writes, the flesh, the way of being human, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the sort of way of God, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. In other words, on your own, in this fallen world, left to your own devices, you'll do what you want. So it won't be, thy will be done, it'll be, my will be done. And Paul says, no way, they're in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Of course not, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. This is not about legislation, it never was. You see the thread that Paul is making, the nuance and the power of it. You're not under law, you are under grace. But if you are under grace, you have God working in your life to make you more loving, more love, more humble, more caring, less selfish, less hateful, less judgmental. And so he says in verse 19, the acts of the flesh are rather obvious. Uh, sexual immorality or pornea, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Many of us think, oh, I'm safe from those. I'm not sure, but leaving that aside, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Paul's point here is these acts of the flesh are obvious, and they're obviously problematic. They are incompatible with the activity of God in your life. I was thinking about this this morning, I didn't write it down. A bit like Tinder, the app. Tinder, left, right, left, right, left, right, cannot be compatible with the grace of God in your life. Tell me how later if you want to. And you get this warning. If you think you're free to do what you want, verse 21, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be careful, you see. But here's the key. The work of God in your life is not acts of the flesh, but fruit, his fruit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You can see it now, can't you? See the way Paul talks about the activity of God? Right? The acts of the flesh are acts, things we do. The fruit of the Spirit is fruit things God grows in your life. The same way fruit grows on a tree that's got its roots in nourishing soil. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness. They're the activity of God that you can expect of Him over time. They are what happens when someone is in the presence of God. The Scriptures promise the activity, this activity of God in your life. Ezekiel 36, since you didn't obey me, since you couldn't on your own steam, I will give you a heart, of, a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. In fact, I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is promising a heart transplant. It's good news. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and carefully keep my laws. I'll make sure your heart beats as my heart beats, says God. In Romans, it's a pouring activity. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through, his, through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And in Galatians, it's fruit of the Spirit, God doing his work within. So, no more nonsense that Christianity is a mere moral code, that Christianity is just ethics. Rather, Christianity is the miraculous activity of God in human lives as his kingdom grows throughout all the earth. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis tried to explain this to others. In a radio broadcast during the war, he said, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on, out of all that, into something beyond to God himself and to Jesus Christ. And fruit is the right metaphor. Fruit happens when a seed is planted in soil and nourished with sunlight and water. The seed is the gospel, the powerful message, which you're hearing today. And I've heard in many ways the word of God. If I can put it this way, the sunlight and the water are not our own effort, but rather the Spirit of God alive in your life. We want to be a church where we're looking for such sunlight and water, making sure the soil of our lives are nourished with nutrients. We want to be a church full of people seeking God. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, since we walk by the Spirit, let us do it. Let's do what we what we what God has done in our let's live the way we're supposed to live. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And it's ongoing work to be filled. There's a wake-up call for some of us who are asleep. For some of us who have been taking God for granted. Some of us who think it's about mere morals or belonging to a club. No, in the end, it's about revival of hearts. J.I. Packer wrote, Honouring the Holy Spirit has, I believe, been the secret of every revival movement in Christendom from the start, whether or not the actual words have been used. Believers honour the Holy Spirit when they give Him His way in their lives and when His ministry of exalting Christ and convincing of sin, sinking them ever lower and Christ ever higher in their estimate, goes unhindered and unquenched. The records of all fruitful times in the church's past confirm this. And it's free, and it's joyful, and it's exciting. And it's not coerced, and it's not a caning. 
And so we pray. We ask God to do his thing. We seek him together. We ask him how we can serve and grow and challenge each other and love. So choose today to align yourself to God. We walk by the Spirit and we watch him do it. We watch the sunlight and the water. We watch him do the thing he does with this seed in your heart. Let's pray.